0: Hi.
1: Hello. Shalom.
0: Hi. How are you?
1: Hi. How am I? Brochshem, I'm well. I am tired. It's been a long day of back to back meetings, but after we record this podcast, that will be over. And I'm very excited for that. I have been watching this new show. Well, it's not a new show, but it's new for me to be watching it called Killing Eve. Oh. It stars Sandra Oh, which already is huge points in its favor. It's about, like, basically, like, lady spies and lady assassins, which, again, already points in its favor. I'll watch anything about female assassins, usually. And then, on top of that, it is so gay. I mean, it is, like... 90% 90% about the homoerotic murder tension between Sandra O oh and the other assassin they're chasing. Oh,
0: okay. Okay.
1: It feels kind of off to say it's gay because they haven't like explicitly hooked up yet. I'm in the middle of season 2, but the centrality of their attraction i was just thinking before i came on this episode it feels like more gay than actually being gay like more gay than gay the gay reality
0: so like i don't know hyper real realism gay
1: uh yeah but it's not the realism of it it's just like something about the the fact (laughs) that murder is such a shared (laughs) Quality of the attraction and tension, for some reason, just elevates it for me into a place where I'm like, this is more gay than I can even handle. And yet I love it.
0: So you're saying that lesbian love is homicidal? Is that what you're
1: saying right now this is what i'm hearing you say yes that's what i'm saying all lesbians are murderers that's my exact point
0: all right okay great
1: (laughs) you heard it here first folks no just that like there is a way in which the story of these two characters the homoerotic tension feels more gay than the homoerotic reality of being gay i think it's the power of the tension That is making me feel this way is like it is so palpable and so extreme and so gay that it feels more gay than gay.
0: Does it actually feel gay or does it feel like women who are about to hook up with each other for like male enjoyment? You know what I mean?
1: For me, it doesn't feel like it's male enjoyment. I think the show is significantly directed by Phoebe Waller Bridge, who is the person from Fleabag. And it's like a very lady directed show as far as I can tell. So. I'm trusting where their intentions are as creators.
0: It feels gay.
1: Yeah, it feels gay to me. Right. It feels not like a straight perception of gayness, but like an incarnation of gayness. Whether or not these two characters ever actually hook up, it feels like it's speaking to something about the experience of the transgressiveness of gay longing that like goes beyond whether the characters actually hook up or not
0: no, that's great i feel like it's hard to find that kind of that kind of lady love i feel like there's a lot of a lot of media out there for like different flavors of two men who love each other i feel like I, there's less less of that going on with the ladies
1: in yeah media. for sure
0: so that's nice
1: anyway yeah that's a thing that's happening in my life i took a beautiful walk today in the sunshine and the spring weather that's
0: really nice
1: yeah so i'm good I'm good. Okay, Michael, how are you? Oh, I'm
0: fine. I, okay, look, I, I went to... I'm fine. I went to Savers look, today. Listen. Crunch Girl and I went to Savers. hmm Okay, which was great. They got a bunch of yeah. pants. They don't have the changing rooms open, but you can return the stuff. So we just like got a bunch of crap, mm-hmm. and we're going to try it on.
1: Right, plus you can sew it if you need to.
0: Yeah, that's true. I got most of my pants from like the size 12, 13 ladies section. Mm -hmm. and everything was good and great and then we went home and Grunge Girl started trying on clothes and then I was put in a situation which I have to react appropriately to the clothes, you Uh, know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have been in that situation. I have put many people in that situation. (laughs) I know,
0: it's really hard.
1: It's like when I'm trying on clothes, I both want to know, like, is it cute? But also, if I already think it's cute, What I secretly want is to be supported in the thought process. Yes, and
0: then there's anger if the, yeah, so.
1: Yes, I'm hearing this. Are you upset with me still?
0: (laughs) Oh no. You're upset with me? I love you. You're my baby. You're not mad? Okay, I love you. You're my tiny little. Anyway, I'm actually having a really nice time. I love my girlfriend.
1: We all do, the world does. Look,
0: I just want this, I just want. Everyone out there to know, I love my girlfriend so much. She's the most beautiful, sexy, fucking butterfly. Chanteuse. She's a chanteuse.
1: (laughs) I just have, for some reason, have become very obsessed with that word.
0: That's a, That's a good word. It's a good word.
1: It's like French or some shit. It literally means like a nightclub singer, but it has become slang for like, not quite a femme fatale, but like, you know, a woman with a little something to her.
0: Oh, will so see yeah.
1: A little yeah. bit of the allure of the nightclub singer.
0: Oh, yes, yes, yes. A harlot.
1: <laughs> the harlotry, I feel, it's not so much about the harlotry, but it, there is an element of like, she's a little bit on the wild side, but yeah. it doesn't have, I don't think... As far as I know, it doesn't have an explicit sexual connotation.
0: Okay, that's neat. What else is happening in my life? Skeeter is curled up between my legs.
1: Oh, you went under your house and found trash?
0: I went under my house, found trash. We're getting dumpster number three to get the trash out from under the house. Wow,
1: dumpster number three, damn. I know,
0: I know. There's these really cute, scary, but like once you get used to them, kind of nice, cute little caterpillars. They're, like, mm-hmm. black and fuzzy.
1: Oh. Do they sting you? Uh, I think they can
0: cause some stinging but on okay. some people, but it's not there a good deal. There
1: were some in Texas which are called asps, oh. which sting you when you touch them, but they look so touchable.
0: Okay, interesting. No, I, the, the, these don't look touchable. They just look, like, cuddly and dangerous, but they're not dangerous.
1: Cuddly and kind of dangerous. The Michael Sokolovsky story.
0: Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> uh, more like inappropriate and harmless great yeah what, what's going on well what's going on jewishly what are we doing today
1: <laughs> great question so we're gonna be talking about some just some wild stuff today i told you all i told you michael and i told you listeners mm-hmm. that i was gonna give us um just going back to the old style just me bringing some stuff that i thought was cool
0: yes yes yes
1: just (laughs) like me bringing like what if the talmud said this would that be fucked up or what yeah so i'm doing that we have more questions coming up of course but today we're going to be talking about something that happens on sukkah 21 this involves the red heifer what do you know about the red heifer Michael,
0: really complicated it's a cow that needs to be produced it needs to be blemish free the ashes of which are used semi-regularly annually maybe maybe more frequently than annually in ceremonies at the temple so there's got to be like a big production of these incredibly rare cows
1: yes it's specifically used for purification of tumat met which is impurity that comes from the dead. And it has to be a red heifer without spot. Well, let me just read you. I have this quote from Nancy Rubin Greenfeld summarizing some stuff from Numbers 19 because it sort of sprawls all over the Parsha and Nancy did us to the service of grouping it all up. So, God said to Moses and Aaron, speak to the sons of Israel and find a completely red cow on which there is no blemish and no yoke has ever come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest and he shall take it outside the camp and slaughter it. This cow shall then be made into an offering and those that participate in the sacrifice shall be unclean until the evening. Remember this everlasting statute, God continues. One who touches the corpse of any human soul becomes unclean for seven days. If the corpse is in a tent, all that is within the tent is also unclean. There is a purification process... Involving water for people in their possessions. If one does not purify oneself after a state of uncleanliness, that soul shall be uprooted from Israel. Anything unclean must be made clean before coming in contact with the holy sanctuary. So basically, this red heifer, it is a very special animal lots of jewish ink has been spilled over it there are all kinds of requirements like it can't be born via cesarean it can never have a yoke on it. it must be completely and perfectly red with no spot of any other color
0: yeah i think there's like a funded by evangelicals organization called the temple institute or something like that that's actually trying to actively create a red heifer like fund huh. the uh, establishment of a red heifer wine. They're like all about like restarting, you know, Third Temple and like the Temple Mount, you know, real out right. there stuff.
1: Wikipedia tells me the red heifer is the official mascot of Gone Academy, a Jewish high school located in Waltham, Massachusetts, which I did not know, but is very funny.
0: That is ridiculous.
1: I was looking to see if I could find anything about that because that is a very big plot point in the book The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is a really great book by Michael Chabon. Anyway, this red heifer, all you really need to know to understand the Parsha that we're going to read, not the Parsha, the Sugya, is that it's this really important sacrificial thing. It's become a big topic at some times because many people believe it would be necessary if we were ever going to have another temple that we would need the red heifer In order to be pure enough to have and operate that temple. So it's become like a big sort of symbolic keystone in, in various messianic movements.
0: Yeah, I think it's the biggest like material bottleneck to Mm -hmm. establishing a third temple. Everything else is straightforward. It might take a lot of gold to make, you know, the menorah or whatever, but it's all pretty straightforward. We'll just get it back
1: from the Vatican. Yeah, 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 or something like wherever it is. And another thing you need to know is essentially that, like, if there is a ohel, which technically means a tent between you and a dead body, you don't get the impurity of the dead body. But otherwise, if you walk over where a dead body is, you do get the impurity of the body.
0: Side note, I think it's interesting that you become impure from touching dead bodies, but also it's necessary for certain people to touch dead bodies as part of the mm-hmm. like the whole mourning process. So right. it's like uncleanliness and cleanliness are not loaded terms necessarily in quite the way.
1: Uh, right, but they are in practical usage. Yeah, yeah it, it's very it's complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very weird.
1: So we read this wonderful, marvelous, bizarre segya, which I will start us with now. Urminhu hu hayu b'nuyot Yerushalayim al gabe wa hasela, kalal Mipne khalal, mipnei k'ver ha nashim ubrot, uyoldot sham, umgadlot b'neihem sham lepara. Courtyards were built in Jerusalem atop the rock. And beneath these courtyards, there was a space of a hand's breadth due to the concern that there might be a grave in the depths. Okay. So, the goal of these courtyards is they're trying to create a physical space that there's no possibility that it could be susceptible to tumult mate.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: And they would bring pregnant women and they would give birth there in the courtyards. And they would raise their children there for the sake of the ritual of the red heifer. So I'm going to read a little more, and, and, and then we'll just talk about it all as a whole. And once they were of the appropriate age, they would bring an ox there. And they would put a door on the back of the ox. And the children would sit on the door and they would hold cups of stone in their hands. And when they reached Siloam, which is a body of water, they descended into the water and filled the cups with water and ascended and sat themselves back on the door. And that water was what, what was used for the ritual of the red heifer.
0: So these kids were raised in a courtyard.
1: Yes, raised in a courtyard from birth to seven or eight.
0: Okay, okay. And then they sat basically on a plank of wood on the back of an ox.
1: Exactly. And the plank of wood there is to establish the status of a tent, so that in the space they need to travel, they will be secure from two mountain mate. On the way to and from.
0: Okay, so then they get the water, and what that what's that water used for?
1: The water is going to be used for mixing together with the ashes of the red heifer.
0: I see, and the water has to be pure, and if you're impure and you touch the vessel that contains the water, you impurify the water, and that's exactly. not
1: good. Exactly, and the cups they have are made of stone because stone cups are not susceptible to tuma, to impurity.
0: Well, if that's the case, why not just have them walk to the water? Why do they need the extra protection of the oxen and riding on the oxen? Well,
1: bed? their contact is, could still be an issue. Oh, okay. It's just the cup itself also needs to be pure.
0: Okay, I see. Okay. Maybe I don't see, but it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, for the way we talk about Talmud on this podcast, the interesting thing is not really about the halakha of Tuba in this case, although right, that right, right. is really interesting. It's just about the idea of this whole thing. So, so tell me your thoughts first off, Michael.
0: Well, okay. I can't pretend to be surprised that you were going to bring this, okay? Because you told me you were going to
1: bring it. So. It's true, I did tell you what was coming.
0: I think it's pretty cool because I've talked about it. I've mentioned it on the pod that what Judaism is missing is a messi- is not a messianic tradition. We definitely have one of those. Is a <laughs> monastic tradition, mm-hmm. and this this is just straight up that. It's it's very right. similar.
1: It's not clear to me whether the children leave the courtyard once they're ripe, once they've gathered their one cup of water, but you might think it might seem sensible that they should just keep them in the courtyard as long as they can to be able to keep doing this. Is part
0: of the ritual like a pre, like a child, like a pre-pubescent child is the one that needs to fetch this water?
1: Well, as far as I know, no. I think probably part of that is they want to get it done as soon as possible. Part of that is probably because judaism does not really have a monastic tradition they want the child to be free to go do other mitzvahs and like do their learning and become a citizen of the world Mm -hmm. although if you have been in nothing but a stone courtyard for the first eight years of your life rabbis i'm sorry to tell you that you're gonna have a problem integrating into society that is a not 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 an appropriate way to raise a child in my opinion (laughs) part of what's interesting to me about this is what feels like a monastic element because it's like about having this class of people who are set aside from birth and put in an isolation situation which feels very monastic another part that's interesting to me is that there is no goddamn way (laughs) that this happened this is not a real thing if you brought me convincing archaeological evidence i would love to be surprised but like There is no way. And so like, what is it doing here? (laughs) What is its purpose?
0: From the perspective of the sages, is it like a myth or, or do they actually believe it happened? Right,
1: I don't know. In context on this page, it is coming to prove something about the nature of what qualifies as a tent. So it's coming as an illustrative anecdote about what qualifies as a tent halakhically. Oh my
0: God. That is amazing.
1: But there's a lot of ways you could have done that without inventing courtyard babies.
0: An extravagant, over-the-top example for proving, like, a minor legal point. That's interesting.
1: Right. Yeah, so I really question part of what's so interesting about the sugya is wondering, like, what is the agenda here? I've said this to a lot of people. I don't remember how many times I've said it on the pod or if I've said it on the pod or not. But a lot of the times, what I and what what I have learned from some scholars is that the rabbis are doing is they are surreptitiously illustrating that the old system is outdated. Basically, they're trying to make it easy for us to move on from the system of the priesthood while still seemingly showing respect for that system. And Mm. an anecdote like this could exist as a way to be like, on the surface level, look at this incredible and holy thing we did. But then they're subliminally trying to tell you, like, do you really want to go back to a world of courtyard babies? Because that's where we would have to go with the temple. So maybe you want to just get on board with rabbinic Judaism. My opponent, my opponent, the priesthood, wants every baby in a courtyard for the first seven years of their life.
0: Oh, my God. I feel like you could go to Israel right now and be like, guys, forget mandatory military service.
1: We need. Courtyard babies.
0: All babies. Courtyards. Cows. It's good.
1: Yeah, who could possibly object? That's one hypothesis of mine about the sneaky agenda that may be going on here.
0: Besides you, perhaps, wishing this agenda to be true, (laughs) do you have any... Is it just intuition? Is it just intuition? Well,
1: no, there are scholars who have, like, proposed that in a sourced and academic way, whose ideas I can't sufficiently regurgitate on this podcast. Yeah, sure. Not about this story in particular. That is just 100% intuition on my part. 100% Tsvara, if you will. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Anytime we say "Sfar," so it's like when they say the title of the movie in the movie. So it's an idea that has some currency in like academic circles and circles that are involved in the academic study of Talmud.
0: It can make sense given the tumultuous history between the predecessors to the rabbinical Jews and their you know, and the Sadducees Mm -hmm. and the priests.
1: It reminds me of one of the other close things we have in the textual tradition that's sort of close to a monastic tradition is the Nazarite vow, where you don't cut your hair, you don't partake of grape products, you don't come in contact with dead bodies. Yeah, yeah. And this is a thing that's hanging around in Bible times and a thing that the rabbis also work pretty hard to make seem impossible and or not even good.
0: Well, that's weird. Like, Like, what do they stand to gain... Or lose.
1: That is a big question that I don't have the answer to, but it seems like part of their set of values is just anti-monastic. I've heard some descriptions of roman and greek like paganisms that feel like they have semi-monastic vibes to them where yeah, people yeah. you know you just are like in the temple doing your temple thing all the time yeah i guess i'm just wondering like what was their perception of what we would call monasticism and and i don't know the answer to that or or what examples they had time to come into contact with
0: yeah it'd be nice to know what the political relationships and grievances were between like nazarites and pharisees and sadducees and all that shit if that trickled down to the Amoraic and tanaitic rabbis and whether that has Mm -hmm. something to do with if there's just your typical human political problems that are creeping in and affecting that stuff right it is kind of a shame we don't do the nazarites from my perspective just Mm because i'm into that kind of
1: right you know i know this i know and there were people there it seems like from what i've read of history there were jewish sects who tried to go in a more monastic direction but they ultimately did not make it into the final cut that i which we are living now the final cut of judaism never going to change ever again
0: you know what that vaguely reminds me of what there are these christian groups that kind of semi-seceded from the catholic church prior Mm -hmm. to the protestant reformation like they kind of like did their own breakaway schisms like way way early on Mm -hmm. some of them still remain today and i don't know it'd be interesting if there were some old jewish nazirite groups
1: i mean there was a lot of promiscuous mixing between people of all kinds of faith traditions going on around the time of the rabbis that we don't read about because we read you know the talmud which has its own agenda yeah but There was definitely all kinds of freaky deaky intermixing of faiths and ideologies going on.
0: We have to check up. We have to go ask some Samaritans. I thought you were
1: going to say we have to go ask Sam.
0: We have to go. Well, we always have to go ask Sam questions, but we should ask some Samaritans and see if they have anything going on.
1: Yeah, for sure. And they still do some sacrifice stuff, so I wonder what their relationship is to the red heifer. That's a whole other episode. Another thing that's really interesting to me about this suga is that the rabbis would tell such a bald-faced and elaborate lie about something that it's not impossible that there could have been someone around who remembered or, like, whose grandfather remembered this time who would have told them if there was an elaborate system of stone courtyard-dwelling babies and their mothers?
0: Well, you know, is it, from their perspective, is it a lie? You know, are, there, are they trying to be like, look at how fucked up those guys were? You know, the good thing they're <laughs> hanging out in the Beit Midrash with us, that that's mm-hmm. way cooler than, like, this bullshit. Or is it propaganda? Is it, like... All of my political enemies are crazy.
1: Right. I just don't know. It just feels like a lot, if they are making the claim that this happened factually, they're Mm -hmm. like trying to maintain that this really happened. That seems like it would have been a stretch to get people to accept, but maybe not. Maybe people had all kinds of ideas about what was happening with the temple.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I
1: don't know. I'm trying to think of an equivalent in our society, like,
0: of something like that.
1: Yeah. Mmm, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it just, it feels like this is a Sugyo that that hits on so many cylinders. It's, like, really just, like, fun and wild mm, on the yeah. surface, and then it has, like, a lot going on when you think about it about like what are the agendas of the creators of the talmud and like what's this doing here
0: it's similar to like balsamic vinegar and like aged cheeses and fermented tea there's something kind of romantic about like oh this product you know these children if you want to think of them as products are like these products that are like take years of processing (laughs) and like
1: right you know what i was thinking is also it has this maybe this tone of everything is progressing like can you believe back in our ancestors times they used to raise children in stone courtyards
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: thank goodness we're so much more enlightened than that these days
0: yeah 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 now like how do we determine if a woman has committed adultery through a crazy ritual?
1: Let us <laughs> right. devote an now entire Now let's get back second. to something sensible, like creating our adultery detection potion.
0: Yes, I love that. What's that thing where you like you hold a stick to look for water? Dowsing. Yeah, it's like you're dowsing ladies.
1: Dowsing ladies. Wow. So yeah, that's what I had to bring today. It was uh, funny and, and complicated, just like a funny little thing.
0: I love it. I love it. I feel like it's it's very similar to the sort of things that I would bring. Yeah,
1: I I agree. That's why one of the reasons I brought it is because I thought you would like it. Oh,
0: yeah. I do love it.
1: This is really Michael and I are like two birds bringing each other shiny objects.
0: Yeah, it's true. true.
1: You all are just witnesses to this process. Yeah,
0: it's it's true. We're two birds like building a nest and we're trying to we're trying to impress each other with like the bits. we're going to
1: find bottle caps and little pieces of glass (laughs) and bringing them home shoelaces
0: Has Hava ever seen, like, a pull tab from an aluminum can before? (laughs) I don't know. We'll see.
1: Yep, exactly. And then I'm like, you fool. I'm on the committee of the historic pull tab can (laughs) restoration society. It's
0: true. It's true. But sometimes I get you. Sometimes I get
1: you. You do. You do. And that's what, you know, keeps the spark alive.
0: That's true. That is true. The pod
1: spark. Dope. Well. That was a really fun story to dive into a little bit with you all. You know, stay tuned for whatever comes next. I haven't really decided what we're doing next week. I'm just pure vibes. And uh, yeah, if you want to get twice as many episodes as Hi, How Are You? You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Hi, How Are You? And get a bunch of bonus content every month. Get a bunch of episodes produced by Michael that have their own special Michael flavor.
0: Yep, they got a flavor.
1: Um, and you know you want to savor the flavor. And yeah, that's all. We love you. We love sharing our shiny little bottle caps with you all. And we'll see you in the next one. Shabuato.
0: Shabuato.